Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now, here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a Tuesday, December 20th, five days till Christmas. And you're looking lovely in your holiday attire. This is Lee Stranahan. America's Finest Reporter, making you smarter each and every gosh darn day. How's it going? I was not feeling well last night, but I will point out, I'm open about this. I'm, I'm a type 2 diabetic, and I have not been, and I've been good at it. I've been very good at being a diabetic lately, but I will, I'm just going to point out that my blood sugar was 94 this morning. So there you go. I've been doing a... My lovely assistant, Shane. Shane, is it is it ketonic or ketonic? Ketonic. I've been on a ketonic diet, ketogenic diet. I've been on a diet that I can't pronounce, that I don't. Here's what I do. Here's my diet strategy. Ready? I do what my wife and my doctor tell me to do. That's what I do. My friend Christina said to me the other day, you really should take charge of your health. And I said, I know, but I can't. And that was true. So I'm really outsourcing my health. I just do, I just eat what people tell me to do. I've talked about this. I've been, I think, three weeks now without coffee. For those of you who are coffee addicts, I know that's weird to you. I get it. I get it. That's cool. It hasn't been that big a deal for me, but I've been having water. I had, a, I had one cup of mint Moroccan tea, which is no sugar, no carbs. But basically the ketogenic diet, that's right, Shane, ketogenic? The ketogenic diet is basically no no carbs. It's it's often confused, or I, I don't know if it's often confused. I don't know if people have heard of it. But the point of it is the ketogenic diet, one of the advantages of it is it's supposed to be able to reverse diabetes. And that's what I'm counting on. And I should get my doctor on at some point. I should get my doctor on to explain it. Because I do think it's a topic that's interesting to people. And, by the way, there is a political significance to it as well. Because I think part of the problem we have with our healthcare system is that we have a healthcare system that is addicted to something as well. Our healthcare system is addicted to insurance. Obamacare is not about healthcare, it was about insurance. Insurance that doesn't provide you with regular health care. And that's a topic for another day because it's a big darn topic. But one of the things that we're addicted to because we have this insurance-based, corporate medicine-based system is we want to manage health problems, but we don't exactly want to cure them. You can use drugs. I take metformin. I I use insulin to manage my diabetes, right? I do that. But the problem is, is it doesn't make it any better. But I do get to buy very expensive insulin pens. I don't know if you've ever bought an insulin pen, but they're on the pricey side. And so I've actually, with this ketogenic, right, Shane? That's correct. Ketogenic, with the ketogenic diet I'm on, 
my blood sugar has actually gone down. Again, it was 94 this morning, which is supposed to be under 100 because you're not up on your diabetes number lingo. It was under 100. So it was 94 this morning. And that's with half the insulin I was using three weeks ago when I had a higher number. So my drug use, I know that sounds bad. If you want to clip part of the show, just go there. So my drug use is down, but my numbers have stabilized and gone down, actually. My blood sugar is now in a healthy level. So my goal is to keep my blood sugar at that healthy level for, you know, a few months. And this is really just to a change in in diet. I haven't really done the hardcore exercise part that I want to do for a variety of practical reasons. As I think I may have mentioned to you, my family and I just moved. And so that's thrown thing. We used to have a, a treadmill at home. And that made it easier. And now there's we, we just don't have the space. And it's been freezing cold where I live. So that kind of takes the fun out of going outside. Here's a, here's a hint for you. I don't know if you know much about cold weather. But when you go outside and your nose falls off, it's cold. And I think if you basically the sidewalks where I live is are littered with noses. That's what's going on. Anyway, big show for you today. Big controversial show. Michael Zulu will be joining us later. Michael Zulu is the, did I say Zulu? If I did, I did not mention that. I was probably thinking of New Black Panther leader Malik Zulu Shabazz. This is, picture the opposite of that. Michael Zulu. Michael Zulu. I know him. Michael Zulu. Mike Zulu. Let's try that again. Mike Zulu will be on today. And he'll be talking about the presentation he and Sheriff Joe Arpaio did last week about Barack Obama's birth certificate. Look, this is a controversial subject. And what's interesting about it, we had Mike on last week. We got into a little bit of the media stuff about it and how they misrepresent this story. But what I want to get into today is the details of what he revealed. And the way they misrepresent this story, I'm going to tell you, pay attention. I'm going to emphasize this when we get into the segment. But I'm not going to – what you're not going to hear today is proof that Barack Obama was born in Kenya. That's what you're absolutely not going to hear because that's not what it's about. It's a, What it's about, you're going to hear this, is whether the birth certificate posted on the White House site by the Obama administration after holding out for months and months is a legitimate document. Sheriff Joe Arpaio and Michael Zulo say it's not, and we're going to go over the reasons why. That's coming up. Also, we're going to be talking about some of the events yesterday, including the multiple terrorist attacks, one of which happened during the show. If you were listening, you got the news update on the truck attack that happened. When when we were doing the show yesterday, we didn't know it was an attack. We knew that a truck had plowed into a Christmas market in Germany and had killed at that point nine people. 
Last death toll I saw was 12. Dozens of people injured. I was interviewing my friend, the great David Horowitz. David was on yesterday. And that news alert came in, so we talked about it a little bit there. David and I, because we both know how Islamic terrorism works, we remember what happened in Nice, France, with that truck attack. We were both suspicious that this was Islamic terrorism, and it turns out to be Islamic terrorism. That, after the shooting of the Russian ambassador yesterday in Turkey. But what I want to talk about in this first little segment here, before we get to our guest, oh, and by the way, have I mentioned we're taking your calls? I should, because it's true. Now, I chastised you yesterday. I'm going to do it again. If you're listening and you want to talk about something, call in 619-924-0786, I'd like, I'm going to go with two or three callers today. I can't make you call, but by the way, if I, if I could, I would. And I'd be called an authoritarian by the left, and I don't care. But please call in. And again, what we're doing here on the Blog Talk Radio Show every day, 2 to 4 Eastern Time, 1 to 3 Central. I should be able to do this math. 12 to 2 Mountain and 11 to 1. That sounds right. Pacific Time. What we're doing live on the show. If you're listening to this on delay, great. I'm glad you're listening. But if you're listening to it live, please call in 619-924-0786. So what we're going to do in the first segment, though, before Mike comes on, is I want to talk about Glenn Beck a little bit. And I may break this up throughout the show. So Glenn Beck, the disintegration of Glenn Beck is just sad. I don't know how else to put it. It's just it's just tremendously sad. What we've seen with Beck is that he was very, I can't even say that word. I'm not going to say it. I can type it. It's virulently, virulently, virulently. Why do I say, I have this problem sometimes. I try to say words that I know what they are. I know what they mean. I could type them, but I I have no idea how to say them. That's one of them. And there's just a little too much. Maybe I shouldn't. I won't use the $10 word. Glenn Beck hates Trump. Shall I put it that way? Let's just go with that. Glenn Beck hates Trump. And he really made that sort of a, a point during the election cycle. And by the way, It has created a ski slope-like effect for Glenn Beck's business, The Blaze. Now, I have been critical of Beck throughout the election for this. I've even been critical of people like my former friend, Dana Lash, who works for Glenn Beck, and who, when I covered the material in, when I went to Beirut, Lebanon in 2013 to cover the Syrian refugee crisis, 
Dana Lash and The Blaze were gracious enough to have me on to talk about what I saw there. That being said, Beck and all his employees, people who I was friends with, Dana, her husband Chris, Ben Howe, who's worked over there at The Blaze, they just went mental. And I think they were following Glenn Beck's lead. And it hasn't gotten better. It just hasn't gotten better. So now Glenn Beck is doing stuff with Samantha B. You may remember Samantha B. from The Daily Show. That's where I remember her from years ago in The Daily Show. And now she's got another show where she's basically kind of doing what she was doing on The Daily Show, which is ranting about things. Well, Glenn Beck has now joined forces with Samantha B. against Trump. A few things I could say about that, but here's what I'm going to say about it. I'm going to remind you of something about Glenn Beck, and that's what I'm going to do in the next segment. Is Just remind you a little something about Glenn Beck and how he absolutely stabbed my friend Andrew Breitbart in the back over the Shirley Sherrod story. Didn't just stab him in the back, stabbed him in the back, threw him under the bus, and really caused Andrew Breitbart to be sent into the media hinterlands for months. And Glenn Beck, I'm going to hold highly responsible for that. And you're going to hear why. I have clips for you. I'm not just going to accuse Beck of something. I'm going to show you what he did. I'm going to play for I'm not going to show you because we're on radio. And if I showed you, you can't see. I don't know if you know this. Again, I don't want to get technical, but you can't see on radio. But I'm going to play the clips for you and show you how Beck changed. And I'm going to work up, I'm going to work into a whole presentation on this. I may have more clips for you another day. But today, I just want to start to get you in to the Glenn Beck betrayal of Andrew Breitbart by lying. An absolutely shameful episode in Glenn Beck's history. And it's all right after the break. I'm going to remind you that Radio Stranahan is brought to you by my own citizen journalism school. Something I feel passionate about and we're getting ready to start. In fact, I have more info on what I've been up to. I've been working in the lab late at night on stuff. I have the Stranahan report coming out. Let me talk to you about that a little later in the show, too. Now I just want to play the promo. I talk about citizen journalism school. Are you tired of the mainstream media and you want to make a difference? Do you read the newspapers or watch TV and think that you can do better? This is Lee Stranahan, and that's why I started Citizen Journalism School. You can check it out at citizenjournalismschool.com, and you'll see why I created a place where you can learn to research, write, promote the stories, make a difference, and make a living doing it. I'd like you to go over to citizenjournalismschool.com right now and sign up for a free course I've got for you. It's called Build Your Media Empire, and the course takes you step-by-step online through the things you need to do to set up the platforms so you can share your voice and your stories. I'll show you how to set up material so you can do writing, podcasting, video. Best of all, it's absolutely free. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com and sign up right now. We 
Mr. Nan said, there's my little spot for citizen journalism school. So let me, yeah, let me, let me do the Beck stuff first, then I'll talk about the Stranahan report, something I'm going to be introducing tomorrow is the rollout plan on that. So let me talk about the Beck thing and give you some, some background on this. So this goes back to 2010, six years ago. And I take it personally because I was friends with Andrew Breitbart. Uh, he hired me to work at Breitbart.com. He was my mentor. He helped. I'd already been doing journalism at the Huffington Post. I was on the left when I met Andrew Breitbart. I'd done work for Move On and Brave New Films and other leftist groups because I was a leftist. I voted for Barack Obama in 2008. And back in 2010, Glenn Beck, and I exposed this in 2011. So Andrew saw this when he was alive. And by the way, he was, uh, when, when I went through and I did the work to show what actually happened, Andrew was stunned by it. So this is one of those things I'm glad that I did during Andrew's life. But there's more to the story. There's more that you don't know. So let's go back to July 2010. Okay? And I'm just going to take you through how Glenn Beck threw Andrew Breitbart under the bus. And I do have some audio clips here. So on July 19th, 2010, you don't need to remember these dates, but I want to put them. So around mid-July, Andrew Breitbart published a bombshell piece. And that bombshell piece was his piece that mentioned Shirley Sherrod. Now, I should point out that the piece was not about Shirley Sherrod. It was part of a long, ongoing dispute between the head of the NAACP and the Tea Party. So this is the first context you need to remember. The piece, I forget how long it was. It was, hundred, it was, it was a long piece. And Sherrod doesn't even get mentioned until far into the piece. But what was happening was Ben Jealous, the head of the NAACP, was accusing the Tea Party of being racist. And Andrew Breitbart did a post defending the Tea Party. As you probably remember, Andrew Breitbart was a huge advocate of the Tea Party. The piece mentioned the NAACP 17 times in the piece and mentioned Shirley Sherrod four times. So that day, when Breitbart ran that piece, Glenn Beck did not talk about this story at all. Glenn Beck was mostly talking about his 828 event that was planned. So the first time Glenn Beck mentions Sherrod, this piece comes out, and it starts a firestorm of controversy. Because Andrew Breitbart was pointing out that Shirley Sherrod, who was a government employee, had made remarks, had told a story about a at an NAACP meeting, and her remarks were Andrew used the term applauded. He did not mean literally people clapped. He meant that they were being agreed with by the crowd. 
Shirley Sherrod told the following story. Now, pay attention to the story. You may have heard it before, but I want you to pay attention to the details. Shirley Sherrod said that when she was working, not for the government, but for a, another group, a white farmer came to her and that asking for help. And she was in a position to help him, but she said the white farmer was acting superior to her. And that therefore, in her words, she didn't give him the full support she could have. But she decided to send him to an attorney, and she sent him to a white attorney. She sent a white farmer to a white attorney who didn't help him. And Sherrod says in that speech that that's when she realized it's not about race. Well, it is about race, she said, but it's about you know, rich and poor. Now, all of that was in the speech excerpt that uh, Andrew Breitbart posted on July 19th. This is where you, the term selectively edited. They call it selectively edited. Now, that's the first lie about what Andrew Breitbart did. It was not selectively edited. It was excerpted. We're doing a thing now on Radio Stranahan, by the way, where I'm excerpting the shows. So I'm taking little five, ten-minute segments, and I'm posting them on SoundCloud so people can listen to them, and also so I can link to the five- or ten-minute segment in stories that I write for Breitbart. Does that make sense? So in other words, when I interview somebody like David Horowitz or like Jay Christian Adams or like Seb Gorka, any of the people we've interviewed in the past couple weeks here, at Radio Stranahan, when I interview those people, I can turn those, these are amazing people we get to talk to, and I can take that content, those interviews, and turn it into stories at Breitbart, but I don't want to link to the whole two-hour show, so I excerpt it. Now, that's not selective, I guess it is selective editing. I'm selecting a part of it, but it's not deceptive editing. They referred to what Andrew did also as deceptive editing. And it's not true because Andrew had the part in there where Shirley Sherrod said that she later helped the white farmer. But there's more to that story that nobody reported except me. And by the way, that's why I am America's finest reporter. We've established that because I keep saying it. That's the way I plan to establish it. But as you'll hear in a few minutes, that's why. I am America's finest reporter because I re- tell you things. I report on things nobody else is telling you. So I'm going to tell you the rest of the story on the Shirley Sherrod case. But let's talk about Glenn Beck now. So what happened was Glenn Beck, on the morning of July 20th, begins talking about this. And he talks about the Shirley Sherrod story for about four or five segments of his show. His show, lots of commercial breaks, so it's broken up. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play for you the very end of the Glenn Beck show from July 20th, 2010. But before I do, before I play this for you, I'm just going to skip ahead. This is what Glenn Beck himself said about Shirley Sherrod. I'm quoting here. This is an article. Glenn Beck said, this is a quote. We didn't rush to condemn her. This is another seemingly redistribution of the wealth woman 
who I would bet that I vehemently disagree with on almost everything. But she asked for the rest of the tape to be heard. The farmers in the story backed her up. It was a turning point story. Glenn Beck said, we defended her and said her side of the story demanded to be heard because context matters. That's what Glenn Beck has said. Now, Glenn Beck's a liar. I'm going to repeat that. Glenn Beck's a liar. But don't take my word for it. I wouldn't be making you smart if I just told you to believe something like that. And that's a pretty harsh statement. Glenn Beck is a liar. He's saying we defended her. Well, no, that's true. He eventually defended her. But I want to play for you what Glenn Beck said that morning on his radio show. I want to take you through the morning of July 20th and play for you what Glenn Beck said. So here's the, this is the way he closed his radio show. This is basically the last few seconds of his radio show. I cut out the end. I've excerpted it. Here's a minute segment. Tell me if this sounds like a guy defending Shirley Sherrod or trying to intimidate and threaten her. You tell me. Here's Glenn Beck. Here's a one-minute excerpt from his July 20th, 2010 radio show. <laughs> and Shirley, wow. you will be on Glenn Beck tonight. Don't miss it. Shirley, I'm, you know, I don't, I rarely have guests. But if you'd like to tell your story, maybe you could literally be on Glenn Beck tonight. I'm sure the White House would love that. I just hope you can see her if she comes in the studio. I don't know. I Is it fading now or are the lights it's, dimming? It's, it's fading. Mom? Mother, is that you? I, I, it is fading, but I strangely feel as though no they won't get any worse until maybe five o'clock tonight and then they may fade quickly we'll see you tonight five o'clock on the fox news channel there you go that's glenn beck that's the end of his show on july 20th 2010 now what happened so you, you can hear he's threatening shirley sherrod shirley sherrod we will be talking about you tonight Now, but here's what happened. During the last hour of Glenn Beck's radio show, while he's on the air, news broke on CNN. And the news that broke was that on the farmer, the white farmer, called Shirley Sherrod a friend who helped us save our farm. So here's what happens. Glenn Beck has a show that's on later on Fox at 5 o'clock. So during the last hour, unbeknownst to Glenn Beck, CNN reports that the farmer's wife called Sherrod a friend and said she saved the farm. Now, I have more for you that, more for you on that coming up. You're going to want to hear this. But here's what happened after that. Just pretend that's what happened, because it looked like, oh, gee, the full speech is Shirley Sherrod learning the error of her ways, which, by the way, was in Andrew Breitbart's part. 1.03 p.m., person who produced the video confirmed that the speech is, as Shirley Sherrod described, went on to explain her learning the error. 1.35, Ed Morrissey, my friend over at Hot Air, 
reports that the edited video is the entirety of the speech that Andrew Breitbart had in his possession. Around four o'clock, Breitbart confirms that he never had the full video. And also at four o'clock, Rick Sanchez on CNN devote an entire hour of his show to the accusations against Sherrod. So in other words, the way the story was reported, it changed. And Andrew Breitbart showed no signs of trying to hide anything. In fact, here's what he said in an interview with Talking Points Memo that was published about four. This is a quote from Talking Points Memo. Breitbart said he'll post the full video if he can get permission from the video production company who filmed it. In other words, he can excerpt it legally the same way I just excerpted Glenn Beck's show. I used one minute of his three-hour show. I can do that. It's under fair use. And Andrew Breitbart also maintained, this is according to Talking Points memo that day, that afternoon, that he didn't edit the clip and it was sent to him already edited. All true. Now, that's what happened in the morning. In the afternoon when Glenn is not on the air, the story changes. The tide seems to be turning. And the media narrative starts to be building that Andrew Breitbart got the story wrong. After this short break, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to play for you the truth. I'm going to let you hear it yourself. As to how Glenn Beck's tune changed that night, I want you to hear it. It is stunning, and you're going to understand why it pissed off Andrew Breitbart. That's coming up next on Radio Stranahan. By all first mention, uh, Lee Stranahan. Cuddly. He's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club. <laughs> For reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. That's Andrew Breitbart, and that's me, Lee Stranahan. Welcome to Radio Stranahan. We're talking about Glenn Beck's turnabout betrayal of the truth and of Andrew Breitbart, where Glenn Beck acted like a snake in the grass in 2010, a contemptible little weasel. And you'll hear why. So, as I explained in the last segment, Glenn Beck ends his show by going after Shirley Sherrod. And I played that for you. Then... During the day, between the time he's on the radio in the morning, the time he's on Fox News on TV at night, back in 2010, the story seems to change, and the media establishment starts to say, oh, Andrew Breitbart was wrong. And I'm going to talk about how Andrew Breitbart was not just wrong, but that Shirley Sherrod is also a contemptible liar. Oh, and by the way, this is Shirley Sherrod who sued Andrew Breitbart. So I'm going to say that again. She's a contemptible liar. And I'll explain why I say that in a moment. But let's just hear, let's just hear one more time. Here's Glenn Beck that morning on the radio. <laughs> and Shirley, wow. you will be on Glenn Beck tonight. Don't miss it. Shirley, I'm, you know, I don't, I rarely have guests. But if you'd like to tell your story... Maybe you could literally be on Glenn Beck tonight. I'm sure the White House. There, there you go. So he's the entire show. I, I will go through it. I will pull more clips 
from that show. So you'll hear, what did Glenn Beck do on the radio that morning? Number one, he completely dropped the context. He didn't mention the NAACP. He, Glenn Beck, single-handedly made the story about Shirley Sherrod. He's the one who did that. As I told you, Andrew Breitbart's story, which included the Sherrod video, was about the NAACP. He mentions the NAACP 17 times. He mentioned Sherrod four times. As an example of how an NAACP audience is racist. Glenn switches the story, and Glenn at that point had a much bigger audience than Breitbart. Much bigger. Oh, how things have changed. At that point, Glenn Beck had a much bigger audience than Andrew Breitbart. He was on the radio in the morning, nationwide. He was on TV at night on Fox. Massive audience. And so this is why Glenn Beck rolling over like a puppy who needs his belly rubbed to the mainstream media, as he's doing now, sucking up to the media for the last year by hating on Trump and claiming it's integrity. It's not integrity. There's no integrity in trying to help Hillary Clinton get elected. Am I going to get in trouble for this? I can't tell if I'm going to get in trouble for this. But, you know, I believe in the truth. And I believe that telling the truth, Glenn Beck pays lip service to the truth. If Glenn, and I have offered, if Glenn Beck wants to talk about this anytime, and I'm punching up here, I know I am. I know Glenn Beck doesn't have to pay any attention. But people can tell that coward Glenn Beck, if he wants to sit down, I'll go over this timeline with him. If he wants to apologize to Andrew Breitbart, to Breitbart News, and Andrew Breitbart's family. I'm a Christian. After there's some repentance, I'll accept his forgiveness. I'll forgive him. And I mean it. I'll forgive him. But he's never apologized for what he did to Andrew Breitbart. What did he do? So he switched the story. He changed the nature of the story. He threatened Sherrod. <laughs> and Shirley, wow. you will be to intimidate on her. Glenn Beck tonight. That's him trying to intimidate. Now, on the Glenn Beck show later that night, after it's revealed that the mainstream media is starting to turn on Breitbart and going, oh, he didn't report the whole story, even though he did. Here's what Glenn Beck said on his TV show that night. Listen up. Obviously, racist comments deserve to be condemned. Now, she's been forced to resign, and that's where the problem comes in, because she says she hasn't even been allowed to tell her side of the story, which allegedly is that this event took place 24 years ago, and in fact, now she is friends with that farmer, and she was only telling that story to show that she learned her lesson that it is not about race. She goes on to say it's not about black and white. It's about who has and who has not. Now, lending credibility to her side of the story, let me play her comments that we do have right after stating that she turned the white farmer over to one of his own kind. Here it is. Versus those who have. And not so much about why he did 
puzzled by this. She seems like a nice lady. If it was indeed a, a speech to where, like this would be like taking a videotape of me at an AA meeting where I say, and you know what, I have to tell you something. I, I was drunk every day, I was completely out of control, I'd pass out, having blackouts, and stop the tape there before I said, until I found Jesus, until I found AA, until I realized there was another way. And then Fox firing me because they're rolling a tape of me saying that I was drunk and passed out. Hmm. You can hear him there, Glenn Beck, saying, oh, she seems like a nice lady. This is the part of Glenn Beck that is disgusting. The part of Glenn Beck that's disgusting. And again, Glenn Beck's got some good little slogans. The truth has no agenda. That's a great slogan. The problem is you have to tell the truth. The problem is you have to be a human being who's more interested in the truth than trying to suck up to your audience. And again, I'll point that out, that, that I'm not trying to suck up to you here. I'm showing you what he did. He changed because the story changed. And I'll play you more at some other point. I'm going to go through and play you some of the other excerpts from the Glenn Beck show and show you how he changed. But you can hear it there, just hearing the end of his show and what he said that night on TV. And so what happened by Glenn Beck using his big audience, using the clout that he had with a nationwide radio show, and then his TV show, he helped to bury Andrew Breitbart. Now, let me tell you one of the reasons it's so offensive. It's because Shirley Sherrod lied. I'm going to say it again. Shirley Sherrod lied, and she lied in a racist way. And I proved this, unfortunately, after Andrew Breitbart died. This is a story I was not really allowed to pursue. And then at one point after Andrew died, I was not working for Breitbart, and I could write and report about whatever I wanted to. So I looked into this, and here's what I found out. And here's the shocking part. And again, I have the audio on this, and I'll play it at some point because I want you to hear it. And it's why I'm very comfortable saying Shirley Sherrod's a racist liar. Very comfortable saying it because it's the truth, and I have the proof. Shirley Sherrod's story is that she sent the white farmer to one of his own kind, a white attorney who didn't help him. Right? You heard Glenn Beck say it. But you heard Shirley Sherrod say it. The audio was bad there. But that's what she says. Took him to one of his own kind who didn't help him. And I started to realize that it's not about race. It's about who has and who has not. Well, Shirley Sherrod has not the ability to be honest because the shocking detail that I found out and I'm the only one to ever report this ever and it's disturbing to me 
that I'm the only one to ever report it. Because I consider it a major story. Christian Adams, who was on the show the other day, he actually put it on a blog that he has as well. And he, he helped promote it. But that's about it. Shirley Sherrod did not, in fact, send the white farmer to a white lawyer. I'm going to repeat that because this is a lie that's never been corrected. Shirley Sherrod did not send the white farmer to a white lawyer. So when she says that in the speech, she's lying. She's saying it to basically an all-black audience. It was an NAACP audience, so I assume it was all-black or nearly all-black audience. And this is why I say it's a racist lie. So contrary to what Shirley Sherrod said in the speech, and contrary to every single news report smearing my friend, my mentor, Andrew Breitbart, Shirley Sherrod did not take the white farmer to a white lawyer. She sent him to a black lawyer. And the black lawyer didn't help the white farmer. Do you see why she lied? You see how that might not help her message of racial healing or whatever her message is supposed to be? Talking about white people, this white farmer who is acting superior. By the way, that's another lie. He wasn't acting superior to her. He was hard of hearing because he's a World War II vet. You with me? And so he talks a little loud because he's hard of hearing. Shirley Sherrod took that as this white guy acting superior to her. That's how she took it. That's a form of racism. Ask me. Assuming someone is talking to you, acting uppity is a type of racism, and then not wanting to help that person, which is what she admitted to doing. She said, I didn't feel like giving the full benefit, but but I sent him to a, she said a white lawyer, it's a lie. She sent him to a black lawyer. Now, how do I know this? I sound cocky and competent, don't I? Well, I know it because I talked to the white farmer and his wife. And I recorded the entire conversation. I talked to them on the record and recorded the conversation. And I went over the point with them over and over again. And I don't have those clips queued up because I have to find them amongst my vast Stranahan reporting piles. She sent him to a black lawyer and then lied about it in a speech. And it was only after the black lawyer, according to the farmer, took their money and did nothing to help them, that they went back to Shirley Sherrod, and then Shirley Sherrod gave her the name of a white lawyer who did help them. And by the way, I also spoke to that white lawyer, and he confirmed the story as well. So that's double confirmed. Why has no one reported this? Because throwing Andrew Breitbart under the bus was easy. Why didn't the right-wing media jump to Steve Bannon's support? Because they realize how dangerous we are at Breitbart News. That's why. 
we're an existential threat to everything that they're doing. Because Andrew Breitbart was clear about his goal. I'll have a little more about this after this incredibly short break. No false modesty, please, Lee. Forget the Pulitzers. You know, you should be getting a, a, a global prize for what you've been doing because it, it's really something that nobody else has done and, and you're really leading the way. Radio Stranahan. It's the great Sebastian Gorka saying things about me that are slightly embarrassing. If you want to call in and talk about this, if you have any questions... You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Number to call in, 619-924-0786. Coming up next hour, we have Mike Zulo talking about the Obama birth certificate. So we've been talking about Glenn Beck. Shirley Sherrod. And by the way, part of what happened there, I have a couple guests I'm trying to get on the show to talk about this idea of how dangerous consensus is, how dangerous it is when everybody jumps onto a story and the bullying that starts. And it's a good setup, actually, for Mike Zulo and this Obama birth certificate story, because I'm not even supposed to talk about it. If you're a journalist, If you even mention it, if you even try to give the guy a fair hearing, Mike Zullo and Sheriff Joe Arpaio on the story, what they do is they bully you. They brand you. Oh, you're a birther. You're spreading conspiracy theories. That's not how I roll. If you know anything about my reporting, it's all factual. That's how I do it, which is why, by the way, they don't dare put me on TV. Because I've challenged the narratives over and over again from my reporting on John Edwards to my reporting on the student bill rape case to my reporting with Andrew Breitbart on the Pigford story to what's going on in Syria over and over again. I get the stories right. And there's a reason I get the stories right. There's a method I use to get the stories right. But I pride myself on getting things factually correct. And I'll tell you one component of that is simply bravery. It's simply being the person who's afraid, not afraid, forgive me, that'd be bad advice. It's being the person who's not afraid to look at a crowd of people. Everybody's going in one direction. And you're the only person who sees the truth and saying, you know what? I'm not going to be intimidated by you. There's a really interesting movie on Netflix. It's called Experimenter. And it's really interesting as a filmmaker. They do a lot of things in the film that are very interesting, the way they break the fourth wall in a sort of unique way. Everyone breaks the fourth wall now. That's not Breaking the fourth wall, in case you're not familiar with the term, is where the actor turns to the camera and actually talks to the camera, for instance. Talks directly to the audience. Woody Allen did this in his comedies in the 70s, and he's not the first person to do it, but but now it's very common. The film Deadpool, you've got a comic book character who would break the fourth wall continually, 
makes a joke about it. By the way, I enjoyed that film. It's very snarky and self-referential, but it's got the kind of references I like. So I see, I see why it did well. And you, but what you need to know about that is, by the way, the comic book Deadpool also broke the fourth wall. The comic book itself. So the movie, they didn't take comic material and then decide, oh, we're going to break the fourth wall. That's the way the comic book was, but I digress. And by the way, I got so far into the fourth wall thing, I have no idea what I was just talking about. Shane, what was I just talking about? Shane doesn't know either. Experimenter. That's right. Thank you. I knew Shane would help me. He is young and I am old. So Experimenter, the film about Stanley Milgram. Stanley Milgram was the guy who did what's become famous as the Milgram Experiment, which is, you've seen this, you've heard about it, where two people are brought in and one person says, we're going to do an experiment here. One person's going to be the teacher. The other person's going to be the learner. Every time the learner answers a question wrong, you're supposed to use electricity to jolt them. And then the other side of the wall, so you can't see them. And really what was happening is the learner was part of the experiment too. Really, the experiment was not about teaching and learning. It was to see how far people would go in inflicting pain on a stranger. For the sake of an experiment, for the sake of somebody else telling them what to do. It was an experiment about how people respond to authority. But Milgram did another experiment that's less known, but it's pretty well known, where they had a group of people, and they were all given a problem simple problem, a math problem or something like that. It was lines, actually. It was showing which, which line is the shortest. And there was a row of like five people. And so the first person would look at the lines and go, line A is the shortest. The second person would go, line A is the shortest. Third person, line A. Fourth person, line A. Now, those four people, the first four were all setups. They were all plants. They were all put in there by Milgram. The experiment was to see what the fifth person would do. And what happened is, after a few times of doing this question, the first four people started answering in a way that was clearly not right. They'd say, which line is the shortest? And it was line B, let's say. But the first four people would all say line A. And it was clearly not the case. And the experiment was to see if the fifth person would just go along with what the first four said. I'm not asking you to be cynical about human nature, but how do you think that went? You can probably guess, right? The fifth person agreed. So I mentioned this in the context of that's human nature. One second, Shane is saying something. Ah, forgive me. Shane, Shane is pointing out that the second experiment was not Milgram's experiment, but it was his mentor. But it was in the film, right? That's why I'm, that's why it was not in Deadpool, by the way. The experiment was not in Deadpool. It was an experimenter, but he's right. It was not Milgram himself who did that experiment. It was his mentor who became well known for doing that experiment. So but the, the point of that is, by the way, watch Exper- experimenters on Netflix. Check it out. If you like sort of challenging, intellectual, interestingly made independent films, 
I would recommend it. Smart film. But the point there is, and thanks for, thanks for pointing out. See, this is one of my other tricks, by the way. Here's how to be right. Once somebody points out that you're wrong, admit it. That's a good trick. That's one of my big tricks as a journalist. Is when I realize that something I think is wrong, I don't cling to it. I don't hold on to it. Facts are facts. And when I realize I'm something wrong, for instance, it wasn't Milgram, it was a mentor who said it. I don't argue with that. I don't say, oh, no, well, I no, I think it was Milgram. And Shane looked it up. He's correct. So this is one of my tricks. And if it seems like, well, that's a stupid trick, oh, my gosh, you'd be surprised how people won't do it. The Pizzagate thing we've talked about, this is a clear case where people simply won't admit that they're wrong. I'm not going to go into detail on that again, but people simply won't admit that they're wrong. They, you can show them all the evidence in the world. This is another psychological factor where once people are into a position and invested in it, they don't like to admit that they were wrong. But you need to be able to do that, particularly if you're a reporter. My point is, is that good reporting requires bravery, requires honesty, the ability to admit when you've made a mistake. By the way, I'd love Glenn Beck to do that. Glenn Beck, we talked, we've been talking this hour about how Glenn Beck betrayed Andrew Breitbart and the truth, talked about bravery and how Glenn Beck lacks it. It was a cowardly move playing to the crowd, trying to get the establishment to like him. And it led to a lack of actual research on Shirley Sherrod. See, the reason I'm the only person to report the truth of what Shirley Sherrod said and by the way, it took me less than three hours to find the truth. Once I decided I'm going to d- dig into this, it didn't take long. My point is, because by the way, it was reported, it was a throwaway line in an Atlanta Journal, journal Constitution article. That's where I found it. The, the farmer's wife said in an Atlanta Journal Constitution article where they buried the lead. I should talk about that at some point, too. How burying the lead is one of the big tricks of fake news and the fake news media. They'll report something, but they, they put it down. That should have been the headline. Shirley Sherrod lied. Instead, it was just a throwaway line. I believe it was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I don't remember. But that's, that's my recollection. I'm not looking at my notes. You'll hear me say that frequently. Because I got to look. Let me point out. Like, I... The contents of my head. So you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember the last scene where there's a giant warehouse full of information and art? That's the inside of my head, basically. I have a tremendous amount inside of my head, but I also have a tremendous amount of research material. So when I talk about a story that I know something about, it's based on my experience, but it's also based on a ton of research. But the point is you have to be brave to tell the truth, and no one was brave enough to stick up for Andrew Breitbart, and it bugs me. And it bugs me partially because Andrew Breitbart was a guy who was brave enough to stick up for other people all the time. So this betrayal of Andrew Breitbart and this betrayal of Andrew Breitbart's principles really bothers me because I'm proud to call Andrew Breitbart my mentor 
And I don't think his legacy has been treated well by people who have not gone out there and defended him on this stuff. Anybody could have gone and done the research, but I actually went and did it. Because once I realized there was nothing restricting me from doing it, I just went out and did it. And that's why I say, if Glenn Beck wants to stop his slide, which apparently he doesn't, when he's pairing up with Samantha B, and by the way, all he's going to do is continue to drive the ratings down for his radio show, for the blaze, for everything that he's doing. He's going to drag people down with him. He's going to suck up to the mainstream media. And if you look at Twitter, people aren't biting. Oliver Willis, a guy I know from Media Matters. Oliver works at Media Matters for America. Oliver will mix it up with me on Twitter sometimes. I'll hand that to him. Oliver is a guy, and he was saying, I'll believe, I don't believe Glenn Beck. <laughs> he's like, you know, Glenn Beck's supposedly sorry for things he's done. He's, he's been divisive. That's the other thing Glenn's been doing. He's been on an apology tour for about how divisive he's been. It's really disturbing. But it's just a suck-up move, just like he did with Shirley Sherrod, as we showed earlier in the show. But what he doesn't realize is it's not going to work. The mainstream media is never going to let Glenn Beck back in the club. Never, ever, ever. That's not happening. And so what's happening is, in fact, here's the mainstream media with a message for Glenn Beck. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. That was mainstream media, or it was Willy Wonka. It's hard to say. But the mainstream media is never going to let Glenn back in the club, ever, never, ever. And in the meantime, he's going to alienate the only decent audience he ever had since he was a morning zoo guy. So that's what I have to say about Glenn Beck. Coming up right after this break, I'll be talking about a new project I have, the Stranahan Report. I'll be telling you all about that. Then later in the hour, Michael Zulu, Zulo, oh my God, why do I keep doing that? Michael Zulo, I'm not going to do it when he comes on. Mike Zulo coming on to talk about the Obama birth certificate. My name is Stranahan, so I'm very sympathetic to people screwing up your name. Because whenever people see my name in a written form, they can't pronounce it. That's what happens. Anyway, more coming up right after this on Radio Stranahan. It's the top of the hour. Uh, Lee Stranahan, Braveheart investigative reporter who is, well, just knows everything. Radio Stranahan. It's all good. Do you watch the news and find yourself thinking, I can do better than this? If you know how bad the mainstream media is and you want to make media that's better than they are, I started Citizen Journalism School just for you. CitizenJournalismSchool.com will give you the information and allow you to sign up for the free mailing list and get our free course, Building Your Own Media Empire. But I want to tell you about a program that is for people who are serious about a career in journalism. If you really want to make a difference, We have a program called the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program, where you work directly with me. 
one-on-one and in small group settings. And the best part is it's a fraction of the cost of journalism school. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com right now to get more information. Citizenjournalismschool.com. This is Lee Stranahan. You're listening to So while we're talking about stuff I've been up to, let me talk about something I'm going to be launching tomorrow and do a slight extended infomercial on Citizen Journalism School. But I don't feel badly about doing this because it's really, I want to talk about why I'm doing it. Um, but let me talk about what's coming up tomorrow. Starting tomorrow, I have, I have, I have you know, a few thousand people on a mailing list and people who signed up for Citizen Journalism School. And I haven't sent them anything because this is always the conundrum I find myself in. This is always the position I find myself in as a teacher. I'm a bit, first off, I love teaching. And I used to make my living doing it. For many, many years, I did seminars around the country and around the world. I think I did eight different countries. Let me think. I'll go over it. United States, Canada, Mexico, England, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand. Am I missing anything? What? Never been to Japan. Never been to Asia. Shane was suggesting Japan. Never been to Asia. Um, but those are the countries I taught in. So I did training around the world, 48 states in the United States, all across the country on video production. That's my background. I say I'm a filmmaker. It's because I've been working in video since I was 14 years old, professionally. I was an intern on a TV show in San Francisco called Video West when I was 14 years old. I was going to college for video production when I was 16 years old. And so I've been working professionally in video production for decades. And I taught. I taught computer graphics. I taught animation. I did a day of, this is how old I am. I did a day of consulting on the film Jurassic Park. I did, right. So I, I go back to that era of computer graphics. And I always feel that you can't teach unless you've mastered a subject. In other words, I'm not one of those people who feels like teaching, there's a cliche, those who can do, do, those who can't teach. And I've never really agreed with that. I think you have to be able to do things in order to teach them. You have to have some degree of mastery in order to be able to teach a subject. Now, it's true in some cases that the people who are the best artists aren't necessarily the best teachers. They're two separate skill sets. One skill set is doing the work. And another skill set is explaining the work. And when it came to stuff like computer graphics, for instance, I was not the best computer artist out there. But I was the best at explaining it, explaining how to do it. My brother, for instance very talented visual effects artist working in Los Angeles right now. He's worked on dozens of films, 
TV projects, stuff you've seen, big shows, amazingly talented artist. Not great at explaining things sometimes because he's good at doing it and he's just always been a very talented artist. And so sometimes what I would do when I teach is I would take what he was doing and I would try to translate it and explain it to people. But with journalism, which I've been doing for close to a decade now, I stopped doing computer animation a few few years ago, stopped doing video graphics. I've mentioned before I worked at NBC on Access Hollywood, the TV show, for about five years. That videotape of Billy Bush and Donald Trump, the famous, the grab him by the, you know, that one. I was working at Access Hollywood at the time. They walked by my office at one point. Not, It was down the hall and up, up the staircase, but still. So I did that work for many, many years, and I taught for many years, and I did instructional videos, and I did live classes and live seminars and private training and everything else. So I've been doing journalism much less than I did video production for much less of a time, not even a decade. I did video production for decades. But I was a darn good teacher. And I know I was a darn good teacher because I still meet people who will tell me that I was able to change their lives through my classes. I would go out and teach stuff, and it got them to get a career in video graphics and animation and filmmaking. And I've done filmmaking classes, too. I've taught filmmaking as well. So I've been thinking about teaching journalism for years since I started doing it. It's a natural extension of what I do. It's a natural extension of my resume. And so I've been thinking about it for many years. But with something like journalism, I've had to master it. And I've had to do something to build my resume. And the thing that I've done to build my resume is to get story after story after story correct that everybody else was getting wrong. It happened on the very first story I covered, which was the John Edwards story, which was John Edwards. I was the guy on the left because I was on the left at that time saying it looked like John Edwards was having an affair and they kicked me out of the club. It's what Andrew Breitbart says. I'll just play that promo again so you can hear. I played it earlier in the show, but listen to what Andrew said. By all first mention, uh, Lee Stranahan. Cuddly. He's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club. <laughs> For reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. And that's exactly accurate. I got thrown out of the club. I got kicked off Daily Cause. I got lost all my liberal friends. Because I was reporting stories that the left was suppressing. That's why I came to the right. That's my story. You know, film, I mentioned Deadpool earlier. That's an origin story, right? Sometimes a film, you see this in comics all the time. Where did the superhero come from? Who was Spider-Man when he was actually Peter Parker? Who was Batman when he was Bruce Wayne? Deadpool is an origin story. That's my origin story. My origin story was I was a guy on the left, successful, frequently making money, frequently front page at Huffington Post, 
and I got kicked out for reporting the truth. But that was the first reporting I did. Then when I met Andrew, we covered the Pigford story, something I'll talk about another time. We were later, everything we did was confirmed by the New York Times, everything we reported. But I prided myself on one thing in journalism. I get the story right. I get to the truth. And I don't cower and I don't hide. I go where the I have no, we got disconnected there. Forgive the technical weirdness. I have no idea why that happened. But hopefully you're still with us. So I'm not sure where it dropped out. But my, my point in the story I'm telling here is that I pride myself on getting stories right. I don't know what other scorecard you can use in journalism. Does that make sense? Like to me, there's one scorecard. The scorecard can't be who's popular. Journalism is not about popularity. shouldn't be. I can tell you I am not. I can guarantee you I am not the journalist with the biggest audience right now. I think that's going to change because I think I pursued the right goal. The goal is to get the story right. That's what I try to do. I try to get the story right. So I made a decision a few years ago that in building my career, I would fearlessly, relentlessly pursue the truth no matter what consequences. I've talked about I've been fired from Breitbart over a story that I got right. I've quit Breitbart in order to pursue a story I knew was true. In that case, the Syrian refugee crisis and the Syrian war what was going on with jihadists, killing Christians. I had to quit Breitbart to go pursue that story, and I did. Because if that's your barometer, if truth is your barometer, it's simply, there's no option. When you're confronted with a choice, when you're confronted with a fork in the road, do I tell the truth or, I, or do I save my career? There's no hope in saving your career by not telling the truth. So that's what I pursued every time. Now, what we're doing tomorrow, what we're going to be launching, and later today, it's not up today. Shane, you should be listening to this. My faithful Kimasabi, Shane. So what we'll do is it'll be on... Do we go to Stranahan or Lee Stranahan? I'll do it Stranahan. We'll do it at Stranahan.com. If you go to Stranahan.com later in the day, you'll be able to sign up for what I'm calling the Stranahan Report. Let me explain what this is. We're going to be joined shortly by Michael Zulo talking about the Obama birth certificate, another story we're not supposed to talk about. But the Stranahan Report is going to be a daily newsletter You'll be getting it around 7 a.m. in the morning if you're on the East Coast, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, 4 Pacific. It's going to be a once-a-morning newsletter where I update you on what I'm working on. But I'm also going to give you the top stories of the day as reported by NPR, by Fox News, and by the BBC. 
and I do that for a specific reason. If you're interested in figuring out the truth, I want you to see what these other sources are talking about, what they consider news. You can learn a lot by seeing what these people consider news and what they don't consider news, what they leave in and what they leave out. And that's what I want you to be able to see. A little bit more about this after this break. It's quarter past the hour. Bringing the truth to all 50 states. Yeah, even Massachusetts. Radio Stranahan. This is Lee Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Number to call in 619-924-0786 if you want to talk about anything. So the the, uh, Stranahan Report is going to be a morning newsletter. You'll be getting it first thing. It's going to make you smarter every day. My goal on that is I'm obsessed with making you smarter about the world, about politics, about news. I'm obsessed with bringing you the truth. That's what I'm obsessed with. I'm not obsessed with feeding you the same pablum everybody else does. I'm just not. And so when a guest like Michael Zulu... Zulo, oh my God, ninth time I've done it. But when a guest like Michael Zulo is coming on to talk about Obama's birth certificate, it's because this is a story that I've actually looked into myself. And I'm willing to admit, I talked to Michael about this the other day. He was on last week. He and Sheriff Joe Arpaio just did a news conference last week talking about Obama's birth certificate. If you do the independent research, if someone shows me where what he's saying is provably wrong, you got to listen to what he's saying. This is the big mistake people make. You know, this is what will this can get you thrown out of court. It's a mistake called failure to state a claim. It's a legal term. Failure to state a claim. In other words, you can file legal paperwork. It looks good. It looks like, oh, it's, it looks, it's formatted the right way. But if you fail to actually state a claim, which you can do, it can be just gobbledygook, your case will be thrown out on that basis. You fail to state a valid legal claim. So you've got to listen to people's claims. If Michael Zulo comes on here and says President Obama was born in Kenya or Uzbekistan or wherever, I'll ask him to prove that. But as you're going to hear, listen to the claim. This is one of the big fallacies that the media uses in trying to dismiss stories like this is they misstate the claim. You're going to hear for yourself when Michael comes on. That's what you're going to hear. But if the claim is stated properly, if the claim is stated accurately, then you have to evaluate that claim. You cannot skip around and evaluate another claim. And this is the big mistake people make. They do it all over the place. 
And it allows people, if they're sloppy about their claims, and this is my problem. I mentioned Pizzagate before. This is my problem with that. They fail to state a claim properly. And when they do state a claim properly, if their claim is John Podesta and Hillary Clinton are running a child sex ring, they have to back that up with evidence. When they don't have evidence, they change it. Oh, it's not really about this. It's about that. It's about is, is there pedophilia in Washington? And the answer is yes. But that's not what you said at first. That's not the first claim that you made. You can't switch claims in the middle. It's called moving the goalpost. The logical name of that fallacy is moving the goalpost. So, and the reason I mention this is because in the morning report, I'm going to show you what NPR, BBC, and Fox News say. Center left source, center right source, and a foreign source. And if you read the morning report, you'll get a sense. I'm not telling you to trust any of them. I'm telling to you, listen to what they say. Listen to their claim as to what, here's what the news stories are. And see how they differ. See how they're different. See what the difference is between them. That's what I want you to do. See if you can figure out why aren't they mentioning this story? Why does NPR mention this story and Fox doesn't or vice versa? Why does the BBC mention this story and neither Fox nor NPR does? Because a lot of this has to do with what they call the inverted pyramid in journalism, which is here's the facts. Most people don't read stories. Most people read headlines. You do it yourself. You'll read three dozen headlines before you click on a story. And then in many cases, you don't finish the story. You, me, and everybody, not just you. You're wonderful. But everybody does that. You know that. You can see the easiest way for the mainstream media to bury a story is to simply not mention it or to lie about the headline. That's another way. We've seen this in Syria. For instance, if you see another way is with language, and you can just do that in the headline. If you see two stories and you see Syrian forces defeat jihadist in Aleppo, that's one headline. Syrian forces de defeat rebels in Aleppo. Those are both accurate headlines. But one of them tells you the story in a very different way than the other one. If you see it's jihadists who are being defeated, you're probably opposed to jihadists. And by the way, I would say it's a more accurate headline, jihadists. That's the thing you need to know about the rebels. The defining characteristic of the rebels is that they're jihadist Islamist. You don't understand that conflict if you don't understand that. Does that make sense? So by seeing what these different news sources report, and what I'm hoping people will do with the Stranahan report, is read it, get a sense of the headlines, it's also going to be updating you on what I've covered on Radio Stranahan 
It'll be giving you excerpts. If I wrote a story that's published at Breitbart, it'll show you that. I'll be talking a little bit about what I'm working on so people can anticipate what's coming up. I'll be talking about film projects of mine. That's what the morning report's going to be. It's going to be a quick, at-a-glance thing. It takes me about 15 minutes to listen to all those sources. You'll be able to read this email in about a minute and a half. And then you'll get a sense of what's going on in the news. If you want to click excerpts and listen to the show or read my article, you can do that. But it's designed to make you smarter first thing in the morning. If you go to stranahan.com, you'll be able to sign up. There'll be a later tonight. It's Tuesday, Tuesday night. I'm saying this out loud because Shane's here in the room, and Shane's going to be the one doing that. You know that, right, Shane? Shane knows that. So Shane will be doing that. And you'll be able to sign up. Just go over to the form and set it for yourself. And by set it, sign up yourself. Forgive me. And it's guaranteed you make you smarter. And it's an evolving project. It could change a little bit, but that's what's going to be happening. Lots more to come. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Number number to call in, 619-924-0786. 619-924-0786. By the way, we have excerpts up at SoundCloud right now. A few excerpts from the show in the past few days. I got to put up some of the stuff with John Cardillo. That was great. John's a, a great guest, and we could have an announcement there pretty soon. I don't, I don't want to get too deep into it, but John kind of hinted at it. So we'll have more to talk about there. But I'm going to badger you to call in again. I'm not above badgering. Because, again, there's a reason I'm doing this. Despite the technical problems that we have at Blog Talk Radio sometimes, and, boy, they're myriad. By the way, if you go to citizenjournalismschool.com and you sign up for the Build Your Media Empire course, I am going to talk about Blog Talk Radio. And, again, I'm not carrying water for anybody. There's a lot that I like about Blog Talk Radio. You can get up and be on the air very quickly. But the technical issues, like we dropped a phone. My phone just stopped working earlier. My phone didn't stop working. My phone was still still working. But Blog Talk Radio disconnected me. I don't know why. But there's a reason we're doing this. There's a reason I'm doing this show two hours a day right now. I can't, I can't get into it too deeply. But we'll have more. So you would help me if you called in. And you were a caller. I understand it's the middle of the day. A lot of people listen to the show later at night. I can tell. We have statistics. I can tell. We get a lot more listens at night than we do live. And I understand that. And I'm sympathetic. In fact, I'm nothing if not sympathetic. But still, I want you to call in. 619-924-0786. Because we're doing this show for a reason. 
And you can see that if you've been listening for the last week or so, we've been rolling out more features on the show a little bit at a time. Anyway, joining us right now, we've been hyping it all show, is Michael Zulo. Michael is the chief researcher who's been working with Sheriff Joe Arpaio on reporting about the Obama birth certificate. Michael, thanks very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Hi, Lee. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing great. So have things slowed down for you? You did the the big press conference. When did you do it? Wednesday last week or – yeah, we we did it. Uh, we did it. I think it was last Wednesday. We did it. Um, Wednesday? No, it was Thursday. I believe we did it. Um, it lasted about an hour. We presented the conclusion. We presented our findings. We presented the fact that we have two different certified forensics experts: one in digital forensics, one in document examination. Both unknown to each other, reviewed the same information, and both came to the same conclusion: the document is inauthentic. Okay, and so let's let's just start with that. We did this last week, and I've talked about it earlier in the show. But one of the ways the media lies about this, you and I have talked about this before, is they misstate what you're claiming. So let's just state very clearly what are you what are you what are you saying is true, and what are you not trying to say? What did you not say in that press conference? What we didn't say in the press conference is we have no idea where Mr. Obama was born. We have no idea, natural-born citizen, non-natural-born citizen. We have no idea. We have no idea if the people represented on the birth certificate as parents are indeed as parents. None of those things were in our purview to investigate. What we are saying is that a PDF file, the image that has been displayed to all of America and around the globe, as he has put it, as proof positive of his birth at Kapolani Medical Center in Honolulu, Hawaii in 1961, is a fraudulent document. That is what we are saying. We have no okay, idea if there say- ever was a birth certificate or if there isn't. So you're saying that the document put on the WhiteHouse.gov site is fraudulent, but I just want to be clear on this. That That could be true right that it's a fraudulent document and he still could have been born in everything you're saying everything else he could have been born in hawaii to those parents and everything else the details of his birth could be accurate correct but you're saying the document is not while the details of the birth may be accurate i want to really preface that and be very very cautious on saying this it is our opinion that if the details are what they're purported to be, there would be no reason to create a fraudulent certificate. There are things in Hawaii law that permit birth events to be amended or actually originally issued decades and decades later. And the way they are done is problematic. The way an amending of a certificate is problematic. So what we're saying here is there's a strong possibility if there is a birth record on file, it doesn't look like what you see. It wasn't created in 1961. That's the point. Now, the distinction in law is it is a violation of federal law to create a fictitious vital statistics record and to display it and to utilize it. And that that was all done here. I mean, utilizing this to convince voters 
that I'm good to go. And that's the problem. Well, and, that's the problem. And so let's just go over the history before we get into the details of what you're able to prove. Let's go over the history of what happened here. So when – and I, I know you haven't been involved from the get-go on this, but when did questions about Obama's birth certificate first come up? Do you remember that? I believe it was around 2008. We didn't get involved in 2011. And it's my understanding that for about 16 years, Mr. Obama had a birth narrative out there in publication being introduced places by other officials in Kenya as purportedly being born abroad. And that narrative stood for 16 years. As a matter of fact, Breitbart discovered in some PR release for him, from his publicist that it actually says he was born in Kenya. Now, that was never corrected publicly by Obama at any time until, obviously, the political aspirations for the presidency, which they don't happen overnight. You're thinking about those for eight, nine years until it became a necessity to change the narrative. Mainstream media reported he was born in Kenya numerous times. Some even said Indonesia, whatever the case may be, was anything but the United States of America. Once he decided he was going to run for president, that narrative was completely dropped. And the new narrative was he was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. The problem there was they first said it was Queens Medical Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. Queens Medical Center promptly disavowed the event, saying it never happened there. And then it was switched to Honolulu. When people that follow these kind of issues started to raise questions, the mainstream media came out with a pejorative called birthers, birtherism, linking them to being racist for simply answering a question that the mainstream media never investigated. If they were doing their job, that change in narrative should have been a, an uber red flag, and they should have went full bore in finding out what was going on here. They never did. And that's how it all started. And why do you think, so what, what and how long was it and again, you say you didn't get involved in this until 2011. How long was it where there were questions about Obama's birth certificate and he didn't produce it? In other words, what should have happened? When these questions came up, what should have happened? What's the normal course of events that should have happened? The normal, the normal course, course of events would have been something as simple as for a fee getting a long-form birth certificate, standing up publicly, hold a press conference, and say, folks, this is my birth document. Here it is. It was released from Hawaii. It's in my hand. It's mine. I have signed affidavits from officials that this is the document. This is mine. Nothing has happened here. This is my, my document. But see, he had a problem. He couldn't do that. Because what had transpired in 2009, the then director, uh, Chayomi Fakino of the Department of Health in Hawaii, proclaimed she saw the document in its bound volume with 500 others in the time period in the vault in the Department of Health in Hawaii. Subsequently, the document can't be located. The then coming in governor, Ambercrombie, publicly says he was going to get to the bottom of this and find the document. He later announces he couldn't find the document. Weeks go by, and then he comes up with this story of, well, we found it in the archives it was half typed, half written, but it's, it's there. 
Well, that's a problem in the narrative because you have the director of health saying she simply walks into a file vault room, pulls down a volume like you would go to the library and pull down an encyclopedia, open the book, and she's claiming she saw it. But it isn't there. It just doesn't fall out of a bound volume. This is not a loose leaf book. This is a bound volume that's been bound for 50 some odd years. And all of a sudden this document isn't there. So there was a problem. Numerous court challenges happened. And instead of the defense defending the Obama certificate, instead of them simply walking into a courtroom with exculpatory evidence, just like I described, a birth certificate with affidavits backing up its authenticity, nobody does that. He spends hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's estimated, in defending the indefensible. At no time did they ever produce a hard copy document. And all this has been going on before we ever got involved. So there's a plethora of problems, and there's, there's just behaviors that they just defy common logic. Nobody would spend this much time and money and energy not to produce something if you had something so easily produced. Okay, and so when did you guys get involved and why? In August of 2011, 250 individuals from a Tea Party in Arizona signed a petition requesting Sheriff Arpaio, who was in his sixth term as sheriff, 24 years, he ends uh, leaving this year, 24 years of service, 30 years of service as a federal agent, head of the DEA. Um, Sheriff Arpaio is asked to look into this matter. The people of Arizona had nowhere to go. They started to petition the Secretary of State to keep them off the ballot until they could figure this out. They couldn't get that cooperation, not because they weren't being uncooperative. They attempted to, to verify the certificate, but they were having problems. They came to Sheriff Arpaio, and they asked him to take a look at it. Sheriff Arpaio has in his state statutes plus constitutional authority that at any time he can call on members of the citizenry to assist him. The program under that is called a posse system. They're not only in Arizona, they're in California, and they have them all all throughout the West. And what Sheriff Arpaio did is he formed a cold case posse, investigative posse, which is comprised of former law enforcement, people with criminal investigation backgrounds, attorneys, physicians, and things like that. And he referred the matter over to us because we work for free. We do not charge for our service. We work for free. We work under the authority of the sheriff's office. Once the sheriff activates you in that capacity, you have the law enforcement authority of the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. And the sheriff asked us to take a look at it. His mandate to me when he gave this case to me was, Mike, I don't think there's anything here. Just verify this PDF thing is okay, and let's clear this document and move the country forward because this isn't good. That's what he said to me. In about 24 hours, I looked at the document, and the document had problems. And I had a report back to him that it did, in fact, have problems. And that started a five-year-long investigation that just concluded last week. And so just to be clear, you just said it, but I want people to hear it again. When Sheriff Joe Arpaio contacted you, his view was basically innocent until proven guilty, right? He thought there was nothing to this story. And... Oh, absolutely. Assume this is- absolutely. 
be over with quickly. Right. Yeah. And and I've I've interviewed Joe. I've talked to Joe Arpaio before. That's the that is the kind of guy he is. And and like you say, he's I believe longest serving sheriff in Maricopa County. Is that correct? Yeah, he'll finish out twenty four years. Another career. Yeah, long, longest longest serving DEA work. Just a tremendous amount of investigative work behind him. So, how did you guys proceed? Did you end up traveling at all to cover this? What did you guys do? Well, we looked at the document. We assembled a lot of uh, document experts, but I want to use that term lightly. There are people very proficient in Adobe Acrobat and, and digital files that they would be recognized as court experts if the need came. And we compiled those people at our first run. We vetted them. We sat down for two days. We analyzed the document any way you could. We did everything we could do to prove the document authentic, and we simply could not. The way the document is constructed in this PDF format was problematic. So we reported that back to the sheriff. At the same time, an issue arose regarding Mr. Obama's selective service card. The selective service card does not display the proper post office canceling date stamp, which would be a four-digit stamp with the year 1980 in it. Mr. Obama's only shows 80, no one nine. It was later determined by us that that was, in fact, a 2008 stamp severed in the middle, separating a zero and an eight, and then that was inverted and put into a stamp handle and gave the canceling stamp its unique appearance. In addition to that, once that little date plug is inverted, if it isn't cut square, when it's put into the stamper um, handle, which has got a little square to hold the date stamps, it's offset because it's no longer square, and it's low and to the right, and we replicated that exactly on the Obama card. So now we had another problem with another document. We held a press conference. We alerted the findings. The press conference was designed to do two things. We wanted media attention, and we wanted congressional attention. We were unable to get both. The investigation continues, and in 2012, I went to the sheriff, and I said, Sheriff, here's a way we can clear this up. I'm going to go to Hawaii. I'm going to sit down with Alvin Onaka, the state registrar, whose stamp and validation appears on the front of the PDF file, in front, on the front of the document, and I'm just going to have him tell me that he, in fact, can identify the, the image, not the information contained in the image, the image bearing his signature and his stamp. That's what I wanted. See, we're not contesting the information. We're contesting that this document, as it's presented, never existed. We went to Hawaii. Once we identified ourselves, Mr. Onaka barricaded himself in his office. He would not come out. We were told that he doesn't talk to the public. We alerted them that we weren't the public, that we're the police, and that it's an official investigation and we need to speak to him. Subsequently, they send out a deputy attorney general by the name of Jill Nagamini. She's kind of pushing us away, but ultimately agrees to sit down for 15 minutes. And during that 15-minute exchange, she was not cooperative at all. It was clear to us they were not going to verify the image. They did release a verification to the Secretary of State in Arizona per his request, 
But we later learned that what they did there is they stonewalled him for about six weeks. And what they ended up doing was contacting him via telephone and having him change the wording of his request. And what they did is they had him ask for what's called a verification in lieu of a certificate. In other words, they're not verifying or giving you another copy of a birth certificate as verification. They're only going to verify the information that's reported on whatever document you present is what's in the original file. So that's what they ended up doing. They stayed away from the image file. They stayed away from this thing that's supposed to look like a 1961 birth certificate, and they're only verifying information. But here's the problem. In the state of Hawaii, if you amend a certificate, once you bring in documentation, could be an affidavit, something else to say, I need to make a change, my information was not reported correctly, it is subjectively up to the director of the Department of Health whether they accept that information or not. Now, bear in mind, this is the president of the United States. Nobody's going to question this or investigate it. They're just going to take it. Once they accept that information, the original record that's in the file is then taken out and secured in a sealed file. And the new amended birth certificate becomes, for legal purposes, the new original document. But the rub is that once you do that by Hawaii statute, that certificate has to be stamped amended, plain for everyone to see, because the certificate no longer has its legal authority. It's not no probative value. It's going to be left up to whatever body is utilizing it to decide if they want to accept it as authentic and original. So it has no legal authority at that point. What we surmise may have happened here is that certificate was amended and it had to be stamped. Well, there's no way you could display an amended certificate to the American people because that's going to trigger the inquiry as to what was the information that was amended. So we believe the certificate, some long, someplace along the line, it was amended with new information <clears throat> by some type of affidavit process just blatantly, blindly accepted, and that created the new birth document. But the new birth document would not look like what you have displayed on whitehouse.gov because there's no physician alive to sign it. That physician is deceased. There's no stamping system left in Hawaii like was done in 1961. So that would have been a problem. So we're not 100% sure as to why this file was created to look like this other than for any other purpose than to deceive the public, to give the impression that this was in existence the way it was from 1961. And we don't believe it was at all. As a matter of fact, we proved it wasn't in our, in our most uh, recent concluding press conference. This document is fraudulent. This didn't exist. The other problem that you have is you have compulsory statutes in, our, in uh, Hawaii, and it is compulsory for the Department of Health upon the representation by anyone to make a certificate. It doesn't mean that there's anything behind that substantiating a birth. You simply report it. And what we learned in our investigation in Hawaii 
it was a common practice for people to go in, claim births happened in Hawaii when they never happened in Hawaii, only to get that certificate registered. Through the course of the investigation, we uh, interviewed multiple vital statistics fraud investigators from different states. And all of them said the same thing, that their biggest point of fraud is when someone comes in to amend a certificate because they end up finding out that the documents provided as proof of validation to amend the certificate are actually fraudulent. So this whole system is ripe for fraud. It's ripe to be deceptive. It has such monumental problems as far as birth documents, birth documents used as breeder documents to get other documents, people getting conferred citizenship that aren't citizens, it it, it is plagued with problems. That document, that 1961 birth certificate, we have proven did not exist in the form you're seeing it. And that's our issue. Now, so when you went in and went, you did the original press conference that's been online for a while where you went over this. What I did was I I watched the whole thing. I downloaded the document myself from the White House website. And then what I did was I looked at a number of articles that were criticizing your press conference. So my, my method was I'm going to look at what you're saying, and then I'm going to look at what the counterclaims are to what you're saying. And so one of the things you talked about, how the document was broken up, the PDF file, if you brought it into a program like Adobe Illustrator and you opened it, it was in different layers. And a lot of the people who were criticizing you, that's where they stopped. They, what they claimed was that you were saying, well, the document split up into layers. And then they would say, well, that's common. That's what happens in a PDF. They're split up into layers. However, that wasn't your claim, right? Your claim was not merely that it was split up into layers. There was something about the way the layers were, correct? That was the issue. Correct. That's correct. The way those layers split up, nine links, nine layers, what was striking on those layers was the way information was being pulled over, if you will, into its own separate layer. And as fate would have it, it's the two date stamps in the lower left and right of the document that I believe they say August 8th, 1961. Those are the dates that the local registrar and then the state registrar would have accepted the document. That would have given it its date, 1961. They're on their own separate layers in totality. In addition to that, you have the registrar stamp, the Yalvin Onaka stamp, certifying this is a true and accurate copy. That's on its own layer. In addition to that, the date stamp adjacent to his stamp is on its own layer. And what was becoming concerning with this is every pertinent piece of information that would have validated the document and created the year of this document being originally created was on its own distinct layer. We ran at that time 1,200 experiments and could not replicate it. We could not make it do this. So that was a big problem for us. And well, and, and we did just, two press just go ahead. Well, let me just try to explain this because so, it gets a little technical, but I think I can explain it. So the question is, 
why does why is the document split up into layers in the first place? When you create a PDF, why is it split up? And the answer, I believe, has to do with compression. In other words, there's stuff going on where they want to make the document as small as possible. And the way they do that is internally the document is split up into these layers. And then that way they can be compressed. Each layer can be, rather than trying to compress the entire page, they can compress sections of it. Now, that process of compression is not, it doesn't care what the content is. In other words, it's not, that, that's an internal program that's trying to, an internal algorithm that's trying to maximize the compression. It's not trying to separate it into distinct, okay, well, this is one section, this is another one. Does that sound accurate so far? Because this is, yeah, this is my understanding. Yeah, that's a, a, a pretty, very, very easy way to explain it. That's exactly what it does. In all our experiments, right. we may have gotten a piece of a date stamp, but not the other one at all. A piece of a register stamp, but not the other one at all. But interestingly, the way we did get a complete register stamp is when we lifted it cut and paste fashion digitally from another document and placed it into a test document we used. Then all of a sudden it came over in its entirety. So there was something triggering the computer algorithms to separate this out. And that's what it was and doing. So when, and so when I went through and I did this experiment on my own after watching your the press, press conference, and I was very skeptical going in, when I did it myself, I noticed that, number one, everything you said was accurate about the way it split. Number two the people who were answering you, and again, I went through at least half a dozen articles where people were going, no, Apio and Zulo are crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, we talked to an expert. It's normal to have it split up in layers. I couldn't find anybody who actually dealt with what you were saying, which is not about it being split up into layers. That's, that's, that's true. That's beyond question. That wasn't the controversy. It was about the specific way in what you just said, which is that parts of it were on their own. I couldn't find anybody to answer that part. And I asked you uh, when we spoke about a year ago, have you seen anybody? I still haven't seen anybody who can explain that. Now, have you? Has anybody even tried? Or do they just deflect and say and do what I suggested that they do, which is say, oh, no, no, it's not about the, you know, it's normal for it to be in layers. That's all I've seen. That's all, that's all that's happened. They just deflected with taking a partially correct answer, which sounds logical, leading their readers or listeners to an illogical conclusion or a wrong conclusion. That's what they're doing. And, and that's been the fight for five years. And it got even worse. As time went on, there's a, there's a group of operatives, and, and people kind of they, – they really kind of step back when I say this, but we've, we've been tracking IP addresses – of people that are doing exactly what you say. Some of them came right out of the White House. There are paid operatives, trolls, that troll this very issue. The minute my name comes up anywhere, they're on it with some other nonsensical explanation. And they started to put forth this idea that the forger of the document was a Xerox 7655 work center copy machine. And this thing has the ability to replicate all these anomalies, and this is the thing that did it. Well, that became so prevalent after 2012 that 
In 2013, we actually acquired a Xerox 7655 copy. The problem we had was the machine we had was more recent and did not have 2011 software. It took us one year to locate a Xerox copier technician who still had the proper software. We located it, we loaded it into the machine, and we performed about 80 different scan campaigns trying to replicate again the Obama certificate. Now, the Xerox copier has an ability to mimic some of these things, but it does not mimic them exactly. Nothing ever came out looking like the Obama certificate. Nothing ever broke out like the Obama certificate. Nothing ever layered like the Obama certificate. So it had this ability. And through further investigation, what we learned is there's actually NSA documentation that teaches how to use these kinds of copy machines as anti-forensics techniques to camouflage things done to documents. So that, posed, that, that didn't really pose a problem. I could have went and explained that away. But the problem I was running into, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an ex-detective, so I, I'm thinking like a cop. I can never get a conviction on this. I may be 100% right, but a jury would never be able to convict somebody because you couldn't get past what's known as beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt is what a logical person would conclude. There was just too much computer minutia in this thing. So I had to step back, and let me just back up a little bit. In 2011, when I got involved in this, I interviewed Jerome Corsi, WND, who was writing the book, Where's, Where's the Birth Certificate, or something to that effect. I interviewed Jerome Corsi for 16 hours, 14 of which I didn't buy anything he was selling. I didn't believe this myself, along with the sheriff. I, didn't think, I thought this was a bunch of garbage. But then he started to show me some things. And one of the things he showed me, which I never released in any of our press conferences before, he had a hard copy birth certificate from a woman who was born 16 days after Obama from Kapolani Medical Center. Her certificate was acquired from the Department of Health in their notarized copy in 1995 and has been in her possession, according to her, ever since. Through a mutual friend, connections were made for Corsi to see the certificate, and ultimately he took possession of it. When I interviewed him and he showed me this certificate, the certificate, even though it's a birth certificate and they all kind of look the same, there was something eerily similar with this certificate. The two date stamps that I earlier described in the left and right side of the document, on her certificate, if you make a transparency overlay and lay it on top of Obama's, the angles of those stamps were very, very close. They weren't exact, but they were very, very close. So I seized the certificate. When we went to Hawaii, I interviewed this woman twice. She is not a suspect. However, she's still an investigative lead. And I don't want to go into those particulars. But I kept the certificate. When the 7655 argument came up, we knew that this was a red herring. This thing did not do this. Because the 7655 has no ability to change angles. So we continue to work with this. And there's a gentleman, Mark Galar, who makes my videos. And I had a step back now. We'll go back up to a year ago. I had a step back, and I'm looking at this problem, and I'm saying I have to get rid of 
this computer nightmare. I have to get rid of this 7655 argument because I know the 7655 didn't do it. There's got to be something else. So in the interim, we sought out a forensic document examiner by the name of Reed Hayes out of Hawaii, some 40 years of document examination experience under his belt, an educator in his field, a, a true professional. I also attempted to contact 200 different forensics examiners in digital forensics in the United States, none of which would help us. As a matter of fact, some of us had some choice words when we contacted them. Others told us they know that this file is fabricated, but it's too high profile. They didn't want to get involved. Ultimately, Mike, in the seconds left, is there a website people can find this information? Not all of it right now. This, this is all being compiled um, because the incoming sheriff, when Sheriff Apio leaves, the incoming sheriff was funded by George Soros for his campaign to the tune of $3 million and has vowed to shut this investigation down. So we are now going to take our finding, our, last, our most recent press conference is the one your people need to see because it's devastating. So much so the mainstream media will not discuss the findings. Um, but he's about to shut it down. We're in the process of trying to get this over to Congress because this needs an investigation. There's, there's more to this story, a lot more to this story. So that's where we are right now. So I don't have anything. Normally this would be up on the sheriff's website. We can't put it there because it's going to be taken down January 1st. So we're going to find right, all the right. things out there. Mike, we're out of time right now, but I really appreciate you, uh, you taking the time and going through this and, and best of luck with this. Like I said, I think you've done a real uh, thorough job in this, and I definitely think it, it's worth a lot better consideration than the media has given it. So thanks for your time. Thanks, Lee. Bye-bye. Take care.